Dear, dear listener, hi, this is John Dupuy. I want to ask a favor of you. If you like the podcast, A Deep Transformation, and you're getting a lot out of it, could you please help us by going to wherever you get your podcast, it's a Spotify or Apple or wherever it is, and write, write a review. That would really help us to get this out. We really believe in what we're doing, and we're really praying and hoping this is helping people and being part of the solution. So if you could do that, it would be greatly appreciated by Roger, myself, and our team. God bless. Thank you. Welcome back to part two of our conversation with Connie Swig, a brilliant analyst and psychotherapist where we talk about the human shadow and why if we don't deal with the shadow, it's going to screw up virtually everything we try to do in our lives. This is important. Stay tuned. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, Life-Enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. So let's talk about awakening because you know, it's not only about the shadow, right? I mean, we all have this aspiration or this reality. Many people leave their teachers and communities because they wake up, they have some experience of union or non-duality, and they go off and become teachers, right, in their own right. And some of them will recreate the problems in their original communities, and some of them will start fresh and, you know, do it differently. But this whole conversation that's happening now in this global, spiritual, integral, non-dual community that the three of us live in is really unique to our time. I mean, if you ever watch Buddha at the gas pump, you see all of these many, many hundreds of, and also in your podcast, many people, ordinary, you know, people who look unassuming, having these experiences, these breakthrough experiences. And so I don't want to discourage people. The purpose of the book is not to say, oh, you know, it's all full of shadow, forget about it. I don't want to discourage people from doing practices and from carrying this dream and keeping it alive. I live with a man who's in a very advanced stage of awareness. You would never know it by looking at him or at the way he lives his life, but his internal reality is unlimited, really, I would say. So it's very real to me. And my intention is not to discourage or prevent people from seeking. That's not where I'm coming from. I found it inspiring. If I can add that to the conversation, it really lit me up. Very excited when I started reading Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. Yeah. So I just wanted to be sure that I said that because, you know, sometimes people see me as the shadow queen and that kind of gets 
projected onto me as all that I'm about. And, you know, that's just not the case. And my, my sense is that actually your work and your book on meeting the shadow really are aimed at helping us move through and past the shadow issues and other issues that come up as an inevitable part of contemplative practice. And I see your book as more oriented towards fostering psychological and spiritual growth and ideally awakening rather than in any way, you know, putting them down. Good. I'm glad. I'm really glad you both said that. Yeah. Because it's risky for me to focus only on the shadow. And I, you know, the sort of how-to part of the book, which I call spiritual shadow work, is really about how to reclaim our projections from charismatic teachers who are acting out. Mm -hmm. And what is it that we project and banish into our own shadow and lose for ourselves? You know, what is it that we're giving away that should really be in our own treasury? And the point of that is not just to reclaim our critical thinking or our authentic feelings or our bodily awareness so that we can then, you know, go and have a great career. The point of that is so that we can then do our spiritual practices with all these lines of development aligned as Wilbur would say, our emotional line of development, our moral line of development, our cognitive line, and our spiritual line of development. Because these temporary states that people are glimpsing now, these spiritual states like popcorn all over the world, people are glimpsing these non-dual states, are not enough. That's not enough. If we're not really working, you know, doing the inner work with our other material, from my point of view. Yeah, Connie, I don't want you to get out of here without asking you this question. And you mentioned it earlier. You talked about the shadow aspect of our unlived gifts. Could you say a, a bit about that? Well, that's really what the inner work of age is about, John. It's about how to... As we move beyond midlife, let's say 50 and onward, how do we begin to uncover what we banished into the shadow that we might want to live out now? And it could be feelings or talents or aptitudes or lifestyle choices, but it's the, you know, Jung came up with this term, the unlived life. And I think that when we recognize that we can't live out everything, we can't live out all possibilities, a certain amount of who we are is going to be not, not only repressed, but unexpressed. It's going to be unexpressed. And then there are moments when we can actually choose to express those things. So, for example, I've taken up knitting. Now, my husband kind of thought it was silly. He didn't get it. But for me, it's become a kind of meditative time where my mind is empty and my body is engaged, my hands are engaged, and I'm creating something. And I think this was unlived in me because my mother was an artist. You can see the painting behind me. My sister was an artist. And I didn't want to be like them. I had, you know, these other 
ambition. And so now I'm kind of living out this, this part of me that's craft. It's a craft. And I'm bringing who I am today to this craft and turning it into a meditative practice. So that's just, you know, kind of one tiny example of how people can begin to express what was unlived in them. And does it feel like you're owning an un, unowned part of yourself? Is, yeah. there, is there energy or a flow or a, thank God, this is, this is great. Just a great gratitude, I suppose, or inspiration that comes out of that. It feels like I'm aligning more with my mother, who I rejected a lot. It feels like I'm using my whole body mind coming through my hands, which I haven't ever really experienced before. But because I've used meditation to silence my mind, I've never used a craft to do that, you know. So it's a really different experience. And it's really been fun. Tony, I'd, I'd love to go back to open up a topic you pointed to as being very important, which is the idea of integrating particularly psychological approaches, psychotherapy with contemplative work. But of course, now we are in a unique position in human history in having multiple kinds of psychological and spiritual approaches. For the first time in history, we have the world's, all the world's spiritual traditions available to us. And in addition, we have now this whole field of psychotherapy with hundreds of schools of psychotherapy. We have group processes. We have communication practices. We have psychedelics. I'd love to hear you speak about finding our way of a mutual enhancement. How do we how do we draw from all these most skillfully to work with shadow, but also to uh, foster our awakening and wholeness and healing? Big question, Roger. <laughs> I think you and I have been asking that question all our lives. <laughs> well, here's the chance to answer it. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know that I have a single answer. I know that I am very distressed about the state of the field of psychology and the medicalization that's happened and the cognitive behavioral neuroscience approach that's taken over and the neglect of unconscious process, which is now pretty established in the field. I think that both my stepson and my stepdaughter are psychologists. And my stepson was trained in CBT and neuroscience and just mocks me about the shadow. I mean, just has, you know, has no ability to take it seriously that there's an unconscious. And so it's as if we work in different fields. It's not the same field, the same language, the same framework or orientation to clinical work. It's just, it's very different. And I'm distressed about the pharmaceutical industry and, you know, how many folks are medicated now. And that's what, that's what is. I mean, I can't change that. That's what is. There used to be, when I went to grad school in the 90s, like you just said, John, there were a number of schools to choose from in that we could call depth psychology, spiritual psychology, transpersonal psychology. There aren't now. 
most of them are gone. You know, so that bridge between the world of early psychodynamic depth psychology and spiritual practice, that world, I think, has best been bridged by Ken Wilber. And he has, you know, a movement and a community of people who understand the linkages in the different lines of development, understand the necessity of focusing on all of the above, the danger of spiritual bypass using our practices to pretend that we don't have psychological material anymore. And, you know, so I don't know really of another school or community. Oh, well, Hamid, um, Almas, also is a much smaller school, but he's also building those bridges. I was in that school for four years and just, it wasn't, it's not my path. So I think in terms of guidance, I think that's your question, Roger. In terms of guidance, I was saying before that people can learn how to attune to themselves and listen for or feel for internal messages that can guide them. And I was talking about that in terms of shadow awareness. But we can do that same self-observation for finding a path or a teacher or a practice that fits for us. If we look for that sense of fit, you know, when you meet someone, you feel a fit, or you find a book and you feel a fit, there is that same congruence or harmony sense of fit that happens when you find a teacher or practice. And so we can, because everything is available now, we can experiment. We can try all kinds of different teachings and practices and see when, you know, watch, attune in, not outward, not what people are telling you. This is the only way to heaven. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about listening to yourself. And recognizing that fit. And at the same time, watching for shadow issues, watching for red flags. Because you might feel a fit when, you know, a single woman might feel a fit when she meets a man and it turns out he's an alcoholic, right? You got to watch for the shadow issues at the same time as you're just kind of following your intuition and sensing what's right for you. And also, being willing to, I would say, being willing to pick up a practice without picking up the whole enchilada. So my husband has been doing inquiry practice from Almas for, I don't know how long now, many years since we left the community. He has continued that practice every day. You know, you can pick up what works for you without having to make a huge commitment or join something. Some people are more joiners and they want the feeling of belonging and some people are more kind of individuated and don't want that. But you can find a practice either way 
So is that useful? Yeah, that's great. And maybe I can add add a couple of things and invite uh, further comments. And but first, I want to just draw out some of the things you you mentioned. You you emphasize the importance again of one's own inner guidance, a felt sense of what what feels right, and the and that implies a kind of open mindedness as one looks to the very many things that are and approaches that are available to us now. And it, you you imply that it's perfectly appropriate to initially take a kind of smorgasbord approach to test things, to see what feels right. And again, trusting your own intuition. And I would just add for psychotherapy, there are so many schools, but the research data is crystal clear. What is most important is the quality of the relationship. Does your relationship with this person feel good? Do you feel you can trust them? You can be open with them, et cetera. That's the most important thing, much more important than the type of therapy. And I would add that uh, you mentioned Ken Wilber's work, uh, very important work in integrating in a way which just hadn't, hadn't been done before both the world's contemplative traditions and the world's uh, psychological traditions. And so if we draw from that and look across the huge array of practices available to us and ask the question, well, what, would a, what would an integral or comprehensive approach to growth and learning and awakening look like? It was just coming up with the following things that could be really valuable. First, a core practice of a contemplative practice of some kind, meditation, yoga. Second, reflective practices, journaling, taking time just to, to engage the intellect consciously. Third, psychotherapy can just be invaluable. And unfortunately, it can be very expensive, but there, there are some less expensive alternatives, which if we can afford any type of psychotherapy, and particularly a depth psychotherapy, and particularly a therapy, with a therapist who has a spiritual orientation, at least openness, that can be valuable, or at least a depth approach like Jungian. Then group work of some kind, being in groups of peers. Peers are the antidote, one of the antidotes to uh, spiritual hierarchies and specialness. And relationships in general. If you want to have your shadow pointed out to you, get married. It's the best possible route. And the psychiatrist, Arthur Dykman, has had a test which has become known as the Dykman Test of Enlightenment. And the test is, is the, is the teacher enlightened? Ask the spouse. <laughs> Initially, I thought, oh, well, that's a nice joke. But the more I thought about it, the more, more accurate it seems. And so relationships. And then something, two other things you've you've mentioned, Connie. One, study. Just a deep contemplative study of profound texts or psychological works can be valuable. And finally, not to forget the body, as you pointed out, that, that some kind of body work can be really valuable. So that's, that's a list of seven things, contemplative, reflection, psychotherapy, groups, relationships, study and somatic. And of course, you know, time is limited, but the, the, as far as I'm aware, that would be a pretty good rounded way of cultivating ourselves in multiple dimensions, guarding against the shadow and opening our spiritual depths and hopefully even having some tastes of awakening. Beautiful. 
I love that. Now I know you're, why you're writing a book on wisdom. <laughs> <Yeah>, forever. <laughs> I love that. You know, as you were speaking, I was recalling a client who identified as Buddhist. He'd been doing Buddhist practices for many years. And as we began to do shadow work and kind of excavate the layers of his psyche, what we uncovered was that in his Catholic childhood, he was told that sex was always bad and his sexual feelings were bad and shameful. And there was an image in his psyche that would come up, which was a, like a Pope-like figure shaking a finger at him, saying, bad, bad, and causing this feelings of shame that would come up when he meditated. And so even though, and this is response to your question of the bridge between spiritual and psychological work. So even though he was doing a regular practice, underneath that, in the shadow, there was this image that was creating or, or stirring uncomfortable feelings and shadow material. And if he had ignored that, if he hadn't been in therapy as well as doing meditation, he wouldn't have recognized what was getting stirred up when he was meditating. And I think that would fall under what you're calling self-reflection or inner work. You could possibly even discover that through journaling. You could, you could discover that in a group if you were really open. And making these connections between these kind of layers of ourselves or these separate lines of development, as Ken says, is really important because otherwise we are at risk, as we've been saying. We are at risk of a lopsided development. And that's really not what we're looking for. Yes, and I, I realized as you were talking there's one other very important element of uh, a, a rounded practice that I had omitted. And just, since I spent years doing research on it, that's rather embarrassing. But lifestyle, one's lifestyle is crucial. Uh, you know, everything from time in nature to, um, you know, the relationships I mentioned, but so many aspects of our lifestyles, and of course, the kind of food we eat has been long been emphasized. And for example, yoga. Well, now even more than ever, that that's probably important. So, so lifestyle is a crucial element of uh, of a well-rounded, contemplative, growth-inducing life. Yeah. Exercise. Exercise, indeed, the somatic side. Yes. Yes. Hey, Connie, I had a question. When I don't want to inter interrupt you, Roger, but go no, go for it, John. Okay, and we, we you started down this road at, at the beginning of the conversation, and we kind of got, you know, we went chose other rivers to flow into. But you you mentioned you know the eruption of the shadow, and you you know you mentioned a Donald Trump and what's going on with our country right now. And for, for me, this is not purely purely academic. My my people that I know that I'm very close have been hurt by this and been, been torn apart. 
by this. And so any light you can shed on the shade there would think it would be useful. And it's just an ongoing, the gift that keeps giving, you know, it's been, uh, he hasn't been president for, I don't know, a long time now. And it's just, and he, he just got indicted, uh, got arrested the other day, went through that. And so it's just constantly, constantly Trump. And he evokes in people fierce loyalty and other stuff too that I don't completely understand. So how, how does how does your work help us to perhaps understand and be more effective in dealing with this phenomena? It's not just arising in the United States, but you know you see with the with the attraction to authoritarian governments uh, arising in democracies and things that are going on. So what anyway? What can you tell us about that? You know. It's very analogous to what we're talking about from my point of view, because his malignant narcissism, his need for attention, you know, his sucking up all the oxygen, whether it's good news or bad news, he's thriving in the spotlight, in some way is analogous to some teachers who are carrying the projection of their students. And I'm not saying that all of his illegal and ethical behavior is analogous. I'm saying that his psychology, his capacity to attract followers and attract loyalty through verbal abuse, through shaming, he controls people through shaming them. You know, he's controlled the Republican Party through verbal abuse and emotional blackmail. This is some of the behavior we see in certain spiritual communities. You know, if you don't do exactly as I say, you'll be excommunicated. You know, you'll never be enlightened or you will be shunned or, and so this childlike part of us that wants to be the perfect follower or the good daughter or the ideal devotee is childlike. That part of us is childlike and not autonomous and not thinking independently. And all of us have that part. You know, we used to call it the inner child, right? All of us have that part that we carry with us and that part has unmet needs and if that part of us thinks those needs are going to get met by this teacher or by this politician and that that person is going to save me or that person is going to give me all the answers i've been searching for or end all the uncertainty and provide all the meaning because there's a religious frenzy around him. I mean, it's, it's very analogous in certain ways. And now there's a religious frenzy building around DeSantis as well, a savior mentality. So, you know, it's this part of us that gives away our needs to someone else to be taken care of and to be safe and to be told what to do. So I think that because our culture emphasizes the heroic ego and autonomy and independence, the flip side of that in the shadow is very childlike. 
and wants to be told what to do, wants to be dependent, wants to be taken care of. And so when we find someone to project that onto that fits the target, that wants to do that, that wants to take control in whatever context, in whatever arena, that part of us kind of lights up. And, you know, Roger, you mentioned that there are these guru-disciple relationships that are thousands of years, that tradition is thousands of years old. But my understanding is that there is a part of that teaching that at a certain point, guru, God, self, at a certain point, the teacher gives back the projection. And that part seems to have been forgotten. I don't know that I've ever seen a teacher do that. I mean, it's possible it's happened that the teacher will at some point empower. Yeah, there have been. Teachers have empowered some students to leave and go teach. Yes. And it seems to me that there are ways to empower students to leave and not go teach, but just go live their lives as well. You know, okay, I recognize you. I recognize your attainment. You have what you need. You can leave me now. And it's kind of like a parent nudging a child off to college, you know, a bird nudging the baby out of the nest. But I don't think that happens enough. I think the dynamic gets caught in the transference, in the parent-child dependency. And that's what Trump is thriving off of. You know, he raised $7 million since his indictment two days ago. I mean, he is thriving off of people's dependency on him for that charge, for that energy, for that belief in him. So I hadn't planned on talking about that, but now that I'm articulating it, I can kind of see how analogous it is. Yeah. You know, and it seems to be it seems to be touching in, as you mentioned, into a very early part of the human psyche, you know, being cared for by the parent. And that's why it seems almost impossible to rationally argue somebody out of this because they're not doing it at a rational level. And, you know, the truth or the facts. No, thanks, ma'am. Don't confuse me. The facts don't matter. The facts don't matter. No, it's pre-rational. Mm. Yeah. And Connie, I want to bring out a couple of things you said that were more general. You mentioned something which I'm sure I must have heard of and thought of, but it was like I'd completely forgotten the, the incredibly important concept of a cultural shadow, that different cultures will have their own shadows. It's like the light bulbs went off and you pointed to the American myth of the independent person, yes, self, self-made person. And of course, the shadow of that will be dependency. It never occurred to me. So thank you. I mean, another blinding insight into the totally obvious. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. And, yeah. And you remind me of the great psychoanalyst, Eric Fromm, who wrote a book, The Escape from Freedom. And Eric Becker, with who wrote on the denial of death, the way we want to give our power away and just find salvation in someone else. Yes. Two really important books. Yes. Yeah. Very helpful. Very helpful. Thank you so much. That and I think salvation is an important word, Roger, here, you know, which carries many different meanings depending on our tradition. But 
Yes, it's so much about salvation. And I'm wondering, you know, as people are listening, I wish we had we could have a conversation with our listeners about, you know, the associations and the images and the feelings that are coming up. Because some of these words are very charged. They're loaded. And they're loaded in our culture. And they're loaded in our spiritual communities, our subcultures. And some of those vocabularies in our spiritual subcultures become cult-like. We all start giving the same meaning to certain words, right? And other people don't really know what we're talking about. And I would say back to our conversation about when it becomes cult-like, a word like salvation can trigger so many different feelings and complexes for people in groups. And it's interesting to try to identify those words in your lineages. Just look, I'm speaking to our listeners. Look at your tradition, your lineages, and what are the words that carry charge for you, that carry meaning, that have a lot of associations? And are all of those associations positive? Are some of them negative? Are they used against you in some way? Is that language used to control you in some way? Be interesting to take a look at that with people. Yeah. Yeah. And you might also add for those of us who are listening, as I am now, is there, if you, you have an organization or a teacher where there's no honorable way to leave or to move on, you know, that is a huge warning flag. No exit. Yeah. And I, I love the phrase, I, I, I may even have come up with it, but quite possible I just play, unconsciously plagiarized it from someone else that cults are easy to get into and hard to get out of. A good good spiritual community is hard to get in and easy to get out of. Ah. Beautiful. Oh, I hadn't heard that. Hard to get into and, and easy to get out of. That's great, Roger. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking communities, I want to ask you to comment on some of the recent movements that have started in recognition of the way that shadow elements and other unsavory elements have played themselves out. In the spiritual world, there's, for example, the Association for Spiritual Integrity, which has grown up and I think you're connected with and is a group of com a community of people and teachers organizing to provide sta ethical standards, etc., and in the culture at large, the best known is the Me Too movement, which has just you know, took off, I, was it 2017? I'd love to have you comment on these movements that have arisen. Well, I'm actually teaching a workshop for Association for Spiritual Integrity this month. Oh, but we won't be broadcasting by then, I think. It's in April, yeah. So, you know, the Me Too movement focused on the workplace and universities, Hollywood, and really was focused on sexual assault and coercion. And it's had actually a huge impact on the culture, even though it's not spoken of now. Certain laws have changed, even in Congress among staffers, laws about harassment have changed, non-disclosure policies have changed, Numbers of high-profile people have gone to prison around it. We all have heard about that. 
it really wasn't extended into the spiritual arena in any formal public conversation. But all that kind of emerged from that applies here to our conversation and to this phenomenon that we're talking about. And I think, so for example, the idea of consent, you know, what is consent in the workplace if a supervisor or a manager has someone, a man or woman's financial well-being under their control, can there be consent? And in the spiritual arena, if a teacher has someone's spiritual well-being under their control, can there be consent? And so this is, this conversation, I think, has expanded from earlier dialogues around feminism and patriarchy, which are still important and still apply. But now what I want to say is there's a kind of a nuance around this issue, I think, in spiritual communities. And that is that some of the women I interviewed really believe that they consent. Mm -hmm. And some of the relationships have ended up in marriage with a teacher and a student. So how do you evaluate that? I mean, who is to say there that there is a predator and a victim? Who is to say that? Mm. So, and, but of course, we don't know. It'd be interesting to follow up those marriages and find out what the power dynamics are like in them. That would be really great to know. But we don't know that. So I think that the complexity of this question of consent, which has been around for a long time, became more conscious in the public arena through Me Too, especially around Hollywood, and how many women lost their acting careers around you know, sexual manipulation. In the spiritual arena, what are the differences? You know, what are the, what are the distinctions to be made? How do we really finally discriminate this? If a female student is devoted to a male teacher, it's not like a workplace situation. In some ways it is, the power dynamic is similar, but it's in some ways it's very different. What if the teacher claims celibacy to the public and the sexuality is secret? And there are many instances of that in the book that kind of broke my heart in my research. What if the um, teacher is not celibate, but married and still having sexual relations with students? What if the teacher is not celibate or married and you know going for sex with students? What, what differences do those things make? How, do that, how does the secrecy affect the larger community. And this is one of the reasons I left the TM movement. You know, when I made certain discoveries about the hypocrisy between what was being said and what was being done. And some people don't care. I mean, there are many people who don't care how their teacher's behaving. They only care about his or her consciousness and how that's affecting them. And the behavior is just like in the background to them. It doesn't matter 
So this is really complex and it's hard in some ways to even call it abuse. I think we can call it abuse when there are traumatic consequences of, you know, PTSD and so forth. And we can clearly say it's abuse. When they're children, obviously, it's a different situation. And when there's coercion of any kind. Yes. I had it, but, but you know, Roger, what's coercion? That's the thing. Well, that's, yeah, okay. It gets, it gets subtle, yes. It gets really subtle, yeah. you know? I mean, and, and outside the spiritual arena, I mean, in any relationship, what's coercion? I mean, it's, it's, and that's one of the things I love about your book. You bring this kind of nuance to the ex investigation and the recognition that these things are more tricky and subtle than we usually recognize, and certainly more tricky and subtle than the headlines. Right. That's right. It's not black and white. And yeah. it triggers an identity crisis, which the headlines don't talk about. You know, who am I? If I have sex with my guru, my swami, my roshi, and I keep it a secret from my community, who am I? Am I a victim? Am I a consort? Am I a special one? Is he going to marry me? Am I abused? You know, a victim? So who am I? And that identity crisis has lots of ripple effects, I think, across our spiritual work across our mm. capacity to deepen our identity into our spiritual nature because mm. then we're struggling with all these grosser level identities and connie i realize you have to go in a few minutes but there's one tricky question i really want to throw in and that is you know, of, of the movements which have arisen the me too is the best known of course and has as you said an enormous impact and very beneficial impact what's the shadow side of that movement I haven't really thought about that. You know, because there are always two sides of the same story, because there is always a Rashomon subjective reality in every situation, we could risk getting into, just as we used to blame the victim, we used to blame the women who made accusations, we could flip and get into blaming the abusers in an automatic way. I'm talking about our collective psyche. We could get, we could flip into blaming men. We used to blame women. Or, or that all, how about this one, that all men are rapists and all men are guilty, you know? Yeah, so we could, we could fall into stereotyping and projection because so many people are not able to hold the complexity of these situations and what's happening in these situations. You know, there are so many spiritual teachers, I believe, who are lonely. Yes. They're yes. isolated. They're isolated on their thrones. They don't have peer groups to talk to. And they can't be collegial with their students and so they try to find intimacy in inappropriate ways so we miss that piece if we instantly blame if we don't look for the underlying causes and motivations or the systemic causes the way that the community or the institution is created like the catholic church 
I mean, the Catholic Church is a perfect example of how it's not going to change after they've paid out billions of dollars and, you know, tried to correct it, unless they change the institutions and the whole way the thing is set up, right? So I think that there are risks of black and white thinking and risks of projection and stereotyping, as John said. And so we want to practice shadow awareness. We want to practice holding our insights and the consequences of our insights and the complexities of them. And to do that, we need both psychological practice and spiritual practice. Yeah. And again, I just so much appreciate your emphasis on the on the, the many perspectives that can be taken, the nuances, and the importance of trying, and we all have our limits, uh, holding, the, holding the complexities and not immediately rushing to assumptions and judgments and stereotypes, etc. Those are mechan psychological mechanisms which are easy to fall into, and part of psychological growth and part of spiritual growth is in is an increased capacity for stepping back, for taking time, for reflecting, for appreciating multiple points of view, and subtleties. So yes. all, I think so many of the things you've emphasized, Connie, are themselves both the means to and the result of the kind of practices and work we're, work we're seeking, and they're very beautiful. I realize you have to go, and I, I thought maybe I, this just occurred to me. I think I'd like to close by reading the blurb I gave for your book. You know, like all of us, I get lots of requests for books, and I most of them I try to ignore. And I, but <laughs> yours, of course, I well I have to ignore. You can't. I can't read them all. But but yours, I really wanted to. I loved, and I really wanted to support, and I know and value you and your work so much. So, and what I wrote, I think, is very is an appropriate summary of, of some aspects of the book. Many of us fondly imagined that spiritual practice would do it all, that with enough meditation or yoga, we would swiftly awaken to abiding love and light. But then we ran into problems, ourselves and our shadows, those powerful inner dimensions and dynamics that remain unconscious, but can overwhelm and humble us. These shadow dynamics are best recognized and healed with the help of wise friends, counselors and guides. People like Connie Zweig, a master guide and illuminator of the shadow, our inner world, and the spiritual path. Connie, thank you so much for the work and for this beautiful book, Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path, and it's been a delight to have you back with us. Thank you, Bob. And you're a gifted writer, too. I had to put in the plug. Your writing doesn't get in the way in the important stuff they're trying to say. It illuminates it and, and draws the reader in. It's really good stuff. Thank you both so much. Such a joy having you back. Thank you, Connie. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation Team.